We are continuing our series, Pathways of Grace, and we spent some time talking about the Word of God, and now we're going to start a little section talking about prayer. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 6, and as I prepared this message and as I faced this part of our series, I experienced mixed emotions. There was excitement about what we can learn about prayer and digging into Scripture, and the Scriptures are so rich in teaching us about prayer. But there was also, as I prepared, just a sense of inadequacy. I have felt, as we approach this topic of prayer, just woefully inadequate. I have a mixture of both a confidence that we can come before the throne of grace, God's going to be faithful and gracious, but also just a sense of my own sin and weakness. And so I don't come to you in this series as any expert on prayer. I don't know what it is. There's just something about the topic of prayer as I think about it and think about teaching on it that just cuts to my heart and in a sense lays me bare before God. I just feel like I need to learn so much about prayer myself. And and I feel like the disciples who watched Jesus pray and watched His prayer life, observed Him and praying at every juncture and praying so truthfully and effectively that they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And so as we start this series, that's my heart, even as I seek to lead you guys in truth and proclaim God's truth, is, Lord, teach me to pray. I don't know how to pray. I fall so far short in this area. So with that in mind, with our recognition that we need the Lord to teach us how to pray, and the recognition that He is faithful. Positioning ourselves in weakness and humility is a good thing because God is a God of grace and He gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. And so if we came to this series thinking, oh, we, we got this one down and Here I am. I I know how to pray. Let me teach you guys. Um, We're in danger. But if we come recognizing that humility and weakness is a good place because He is gracious and faithful, it's good. So with that in mind, let's pray as we prepare. Lord, we just thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your faithfulness, Lord. And Lord, we just confess our need for You, God. Lord, we don't come to this part of our series on Pathways of Grace, Lord, confident in ourselves, Lord. Lord, I feel like the disciples, Lord. We feel, I believe, like them. Teach us to pray, O Lord. We need to learn about prayer. Teach us, O God. Help us understand what prayer is. Help us to become prayers after Your truth after your heart, O oh God. So pour out your Spirit, God, as we begin this series and teach us and lead us. Speak to us and make us a people who pray. Lord, you have said that your house would be a house of prayer for all nations. And that would include this church, this local church as well. So Lord, make us a house of prayer, we pray. Use this time, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5 and 
ending in verse 13. I'll read and you can follow along. Jesus teaching His disciples and said, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Matthew 6, 5-13. Well, we all are familiar with this part of Scripture, or most of us, I would say, are familiar with this part of Scripture, the Lord's Prayer. But actually, Scripture is full from beginning to end of examples of prayer, and actual prayers. And we're going to concentrate on the Lord's Prayer, but, but we first want to see just that prayer is all throughout Scripture. From the beginning to the very end, we see prayer happening in Scripture. Adam, the first to pray. He talked to God. He prayed face to face. He walked with God in the garden, that royal garden in the cool of the day. Later on, there's the fall. We're aware of that into sin. But then there's the line of Seth. And that line of Seth is characterized as people who called on the name of God. Essentially, they prayed. They sought God. We see Noah praying. We see Abraham praying. Praying for a son and praying for the righteous in Sodom. We see Jacob. Jacob, this, this deceiver. God encountering him and then him praying. Him actually wrestling with God before he went to encounter his brother Esau who was bent on revenge. At least Jacob thought he was. He wrestled with God. That's a picture of prayer. Wrestling with God there that evening before he encountered his brother. Jacob. We see Moses interceding. Interceding for the people of Israel and asking God, show me your glory. God, don't abandon your people. Be, dwell in the midst of your people. Don't abandon us. Moses interceding. We see Samuel promising not to fail to pray. David, Isaiah, Elijah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, all these people praying, seeking God in their prayers we see in Scripture. We see it throughout. And then the New Testament opens with prayer. Right? The Gospel of Luke. The first story that it talks about is Zechariah and Elizabeth. They don't have a child. And it starts out, Zechariah is in the temple offering incense at the hour of prayer. And the angel comes to Zechariah and what is one of the first things he says? Well, first he says, don't be afraid. And then he says, your prayer has been heard for a son. So right at the beginning of the New Testament, it opens speaking about prayer. And then we see throughout the New Testament, uh, 
At the very beginning again, Anna, who comes when Jesus is brought to the temple, and she spent her whole time at the temple worshiping and praying. That's, since her husband died when she was young, that's what she had been doing. We see Paul and John. We see Epaphras, who wrestled in prayer as well for the church in, in Colossae. So we see it throughout the Bible. Really, to be the people of God is to be a praying people. Prayer characterizes the people of God, and it's at the very heart of what it means to be God's people. Jesus Himself, the supreme example of the people of God and as a prayer Himself, praying at every juncture in His life. You can spend time just going through the Gospels seeing that He prayed. He prayed at His baptism. He prayed before He selected the disciples. He prayed at every moment. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before He suffered and died. So what we want to do in this series is look at some of these examples, learn from them, but we want to start out looking at the example that Jesus gave us from what we call the Lord's Prayer. There are probably a thousand different messages that we could preach, one could preach from the Lord's Prayer. Now that's not because there's a thousand different meanings to the Lord's Prayer, but there are a thousand or more than a thousand different implications from the richness of this prayer. That's how the Word of God is. There is one meaning, we talked about that a few weeks ago, but there are many, many implications. As a matter of fact, I would say that there are infinite amount of implications of God's Word because it affects all of His creation. So this, this prayer, I think, has many, many messages that can be preached from it, but I want to kind of focus on one aspect of the truth that is in this prayer and really in the whole Scripture. I want us to kind of grasp as we start this series on prayer, what are the fundamentals of prayer? What is prayer? What's the basis of prayer? I want to kind of situate us with the right mindset as we go to prayer. And I, as I prepared and as I came in a sense of weakness, I felt like God was leading me through the Scriptures to see these bases. And I think we can sum it up this way. That prayer is seeking the God who seeks us. Simply put, prayer is seeking the God who seeks us. Seeking the God who has already sought us. Seeking the God who will continue to seek us. Seeking the God who seeks us. And Jesus starts off this prayer with the words, Our Father. Our Father in Heaven. Our Father. Just two words. Small words. A small phrase, but a phrase that has huge impact. There is so much truth packed in that little statement, Our Father, that we can actually never fully comprehend what that means. That it says, Our Father. There is so much truth that comes with that. There is so much, so much understanding behind that. So much life-changing implications in that. You see, all of prayer is actually ultimately based on who God is. And if we understand who God is and what He's like, our prayers will be rightly directed. If we misunderstand who God is, we will be misdirected in how we pray and what we pray. And you can just see that not only, I think, within Christianity, but going outside and, and looking at how different religions pray. How they perceive of God has everything to do with 
how they pray and what they say. And you can just, just look, you look at Islam and see God as transcendent and ultimately unknowable. So their prayers tend to be rote prayers. They're, they don't have, uh, they don't tend to have the kind of the personal, extemporaneous type prayers. They are rote prayers. The God is transcendent and they think somehow if we do this right, we can somehow appeal to the transcendent God who is far above us all. But our God's not like that. The God, the only God, the true God, is our Father. He has revealed Himself as our Father. And prayer is seeking this One who is our Father. And there's some one aspect of our Father that I want us to understand. That, how do I phrase this? He is our Father. That's not a light thing. We, we tend to, in our culture, I think, uh, have very easily see God as a Father. We, we tend to take that for granted. We see God perhaps as a Santa Claus. But in order for us to, to know Him as our Father, there are some incredible truths that, that we need to understand that will, I think, transform our understanding of what it means that He's our Father from kind of a Santa Claus who we sit on the lap and He smiles and has a jolly laugh and we tell Him our wish list to understanding just what it means that He's our Father. See, He has first and foremost revealed Himself to us as our Father. He has first and foremost revealed Himself to us. Prayer is seeking the God who seeks us. It's seeking the God who seeks us. And He has revealed Himself. He has worked in mercy and in grace to show Himself on who He is. So when we start our prayer, we address God. We recognize behind our prayer is, is a God who is a Father who has sought us and initiated relationship with us. We need to understand it's just so important that prayer is seeking a God who has already sought us. As we look through Scripture, we see a God who is revealing Himself. We see a God who is initiating, who is drawing us. It's so important in prayer that we understand that He has first sought us. We are not going to seek a reluctant God. We are not the ones who are taking the initiative to seek Him. He has already sought us. There's this backdrop that we must understand that He has already sought us. And we just see it throughout Scripture. Who made Adam? Did Adam make himself? Did Adam design everything? No. God made Adam. God made Adam and Eve. God decided to make mankind in His image and put mankind in the garden to have a relationship with Him. He did that. And when Adam and Eve fell into their sin, who initiated dealing with that sin? Did they say, God, uh, we just need to talk to You. There's this problem. We kind of disobeyed your, your law and we're falling from You and just wondering if You would be interested in kind of trying to help us out here? No. They went and hid, didn't they? And then God came down and said, Adam, where are You? Adam, where are You? God sought Adam out. He initiated to seek and to find Adam. And we see that throughout Scripture. God called Abram. Did Abram kind of finally figure out that there's actually one guy and, and really we should create this monotheistic religion because that's what makes most sense. And logically, you know, if there's got to be a greatest of the great, there's only got to be one of them because if there's more than one, he's not the great. You know, he didn't go through some philosophy, ontological reason for God. He didn't do that. God revealed Himself to Abram. Abram came from a line of idolaters. And God called Abram out of that idolatry to Himself. So God initiated in calling Abram. He did it with Jacob. 
You know the story of Jacob? Jacob's deceiving his brother. He gets the birthright. He's a deceiver. His very name means deceiver. And what does God do? God reveals himself to Jacob on his way to his cousins to find a wife and so forth. God reveals himself with the staircase descending and, and, and calls on Jacob. And then later on, confronts him and wrestles with him. God seeks Jacob out. Before Jacob prayed anything, God had sought Jacob. Moses. Moses figured out that Israel needed the deliverer and decided to give up his shepherding career and go do something because God wasn't active. No. Moses was kind of happy to be a quiet shepherd in the desert at that point. God revealed Himself to Moses and called Moses. God sought Moses out. We see throughout Scripture God seeking Israel out. And so as we come to prayer, let us not come to prayer thinking, this is all about me seeking God, twisting God's arm somehow to get Him to do something. Because if I don't pray, He's not going to do anything. That's not the backdrop to prayer. The backdrop to prayer is that God has sought us. God is the seeker. And yes, we seek God in prayer. Prayer is seeking God, but it's seeking the God who has sought us. And we know ultimately He has sought us in sending His Son. We didn't figure that out. We didn't think ahead of time, we need, we need a Savior. We need God to come as the God-man and live the perfect life and die for our sins. We didn't do that. He did it. God has sought you out. God has sent His Son because He is seeking after you. He is seeking after worshipers. He is drawing you. He sent His Son before you were born and before anybody had figured it out. He sent His Son to live among people who were not interested in having a Savior like that. They largely rejected Him. He came to those who were His own and His own rejected Him. They said, we don't want any of this. Yet, He still accomplished the plan. God is the initiator. God is the seeker. We didn't seek Him. He has sought us. And He has given His Son. And then He has worked in your life. He's the one who has initiated and brought the truth of the Gospel to you. You didn't figure it out. You didn't get here because you're smarter than your friends or your family. It's not how it works. He sought you out. He chased you down. And any response that you had to Him was ultimately Him drawing you to Himself. I know for me, that's, that's how it happened. I'm no better. And I think I'm a lot worse than my family and my friends who don't know Christ. But God chased me down and brought the truth to me in my life in a miraculous way. And then God breathed on me by the Holy Spirit that I might understand what I had heard for decades. I had heard that Jesus died for my sin, sins since I was a little baby. And it just went in one ear and out the other. I didn't understand until that day God poured out His Spirit on me and opened my eyes to see and behold and understand. He did that. Not me. I wasn't seeking Him. He sought me. You were not seeking God. He has sought you. Romans 3 says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. No one. But God seeks after us. God pursues us. He is the seeker. He is the revealer. He is the one who draws us. He is the one who invites us into His presence. 
So as we begin this series on prayer, we must know and remember that we only pray. We only seek. We only communicate with God because He has first sought us. And He continues to seek us. He wants us to walk with Him. He wants us to communicate. That's so important for us to understand. That He is the one who has sought us out. He seeks us. And so we can come to Him and call Him our Father. Not because we sought Him out, but because He has sent His Son for us. His Son is the only one who has the right ultimately to call Him His Father. Because the Son pleased the Father in every way. Completely. And He did everything the Father asked of Him. Even to the point of death on a cross for your sins. Taking all your sins on Himself. Being acquainted with your transgressions. Bearing them. And dying on the cross for you. For for my sins. For our sins. He did everything to that point of obedience. And so the Father accepted Him. That's what the resurrection is about. The Father said, you have earned it. You have pleased me in every way. I receive your sacrifice. I receive this atonement. I receive the payment for all of my people, for their sins. And I reward you now with new life in the resurrection. And I reward you now with kingship and rulership over all creation. That's what the resurrection is about. And it's our resurrection. Because we belong to Him by faith now, we're united with Him and we can call God our Father because of Christ. We come to the Father through the Son. And He is genuinely our Father. But it is because He's ultimately the Father of the Son. And so, it's important for us to understand God as our Father. And I don't want to diminish that. He is intimate with us. He is a Father. But He's also holy and perfect and glorious and mighty. And so, there's this mixed emotion we're to have when we come to God. I think partly what I've been feeling. I come confident because Christ has gone before me. I'm forgiven and I can walk into the throne of grace. I can walk into my Father's throne room. He's my Father. But He's holy. He's glorious. He's majestic. He's mighty. He's worthy. The pictures in Scripture, when God shows up, when people are in His throne room, they're not sitting on His lap with the Christmas list saying, God, I'd like you to do this, and I'd like a new car, please, and I do need a new set of clothes, and I'd like to have that built-in swimming pool, and that hot tub would be really nice too, and, and, and all those things. That's, that's, not what, that's not what's going on. When Isaiah comes into the throne room, what does he say? Woe is me! Woe is me! He sees the glory of God, and he recognizes, I'm a sinner. And that word, woe is me, is not... We try to tend to think of the woman tied up on the train tracks, you know, that sort of, woe, woe, woe. No, woe means judgment on me. Condemnation on me. I'm a sinner and I'm before the Holy God. So we come to Him as our Father. He is our Father indeed because of through the Son. But He is holy and glorious. And it's ultimately through the Son that we come to the Father. In Alpha, as we talk about the topic of prayer, there's a wonderful illustration we use of this reality that we come to this Holy Father, this glorious Father, as indeed our Father, through the Son. 
And the story is about a, a soldier in the Civil War. As a result of a family tragedy, the soldier had been granted permission to go and see the president. I believe it was to appeal to get out of service. He arrived in Washington and he was denied a meeting with the president. And so he sat out in front of the White House on a park bench, just disconsolate, just upset and sad and despairing, knowing not, not what to do. And a young boy came by and saw him, saw the soldier upset. and said, Mr., what's wrong? And the soldier told the, the young boy this story. He poured out his heart. And the boy said, come on with me. Grabbed him by the hand and, and started to walk the soldier around the back of the White House. Come on, this way. He walked him right between the guards. The guards didn't do anything. They didn't stop him. He walked him by the generals and the high-ranking officials. And the soldier just was following the boy, thinking, whoa, what's going on here? Finally, they came into the presidential office without even knocking, just opened the door, walked right in. Abraham Lincoln was there talking with the Secretary of State. And he turned. And Todd Lincoln said, Dad, this soldier needs your help. Because of the son and the access that he has to the father, the soldier could be walked into the president, president's presence and ask his request. Well, that's what we're like. He has taken us by the hand and we are counted in him. And so we can walk into the presence. And He is indeed our Father. But He's also like the President and so much more. He's glorious and holy. This is our privilege. That we can come to the Father and we can begin our prayer with our Father. So just those two words are so important for us as we begin to go on in this prayer asking for things to recognize that He is our Father because He has sought us. And that's the whole basis of our coming to seek Him. He has already sought us. He has already sought us out. He has been the initiator throughout time. He still is the initiator seeking us. And any seeking that we do of Him is because He's already sought us. And sought us in His Son. So let us establish that as we seek to be faithful and diligent prayers. And let's just keep on looking at, at this passage to learn more about how to pray. So it starts out with our Father. Then next it says, Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. I believe that the rest of this prayer is a result of God seeking us. The ability to truly pray comes because God has sought us. He sought us out. He's given us new life. The Spirit of God is in us dwells in us and we have yearnings for the things of God. And so because of that, because of Him seeking us out, we seek Him. We want to pray and ask the things that are in this. This, I believe, is the, is the heart of every true believer. We've been sought out. He dwells in us and so we want to seek Him. So this prayer really is a seeking after God. So we start out, Our Father, and then it says next, Hallowed be Your name. Hallowed be Your name. That word, Hallow. We don't use that a whole lot, do we? We don't go around saying, you know, that was a hallowed time that we had. We don't, we don't use that word. But hallow means to, to worship or revere or set apart as holy. It has the same sort of root as holy. Holy be your name. Hallowed be your name. And when it says, hallowed be your name, it doesn't mean that people should get really excited when they see the, the letters G-O-D 
you know, and that, that the name, you know, that name is something we hallow. No, hallowed be your name means you, yourself. Be hallowed. Be worshipped. So out of the heart of a, of a believer who has been sought of God is this yearning and desire that God be glorified. To come to know the Lord is to come to value His glory. To come to say, I want you. I want your reigns. I want your kingship. I want your rule. And so we come and we, we pray, hallowed be your name. At the core of our prayers is that desire, that longing, oh God, be glorified. Oh God, show your magnificence. Oh God, help us to taste and see that you're good. Oh God, help others to taste and see that you're good. Oh God, may others value you as the most satisfying thing there is in all the universe. May others value you as the most exciting thing there is. May others see that you are most worthwhile and most enjoyable and most trustworthy. That they may see that you are most interesting of all things. That's what we mean when we say, hallowed be your name. God, may you be glorified in people's lives, in their understanding, in their lives, in our lives. Hallowed be your name, O God. Be glorified. So that is part of how we pray. And the wonderful thing about the Lord's Prayer is that we can just pray it right through the words, and that's a wonderful prayer, a wonderful kind of pre-written prayer for us. But it's also a template for prayer for us. And so we can use these different phrases, first understanding that He has first sought us, to seek God and to pray, hallowed be your name. So you can take five seconds to say, hallowed be your name, or you can take five hours to pray in line with that truth, asking God to be hallowed. That's something that I do and when I pray. and pretty much try to regularly pray with the template of the Lord's Prayer and just pray for God to be hallowed. And I start to think of all the different places for Him to be hallowed. I think of my own life and I get into specifics. Lord, be hallowed in my life. Be hallowed in how I relate to my wife and my kids. Help me with this area where I'm struggling and sinning because I'm not hallowing you there. I'm not living for your glory. I'm valuing something else more than you and that's why I'm sinning there. So help me with that area. And then I'll pray for others. Lord, be hallowed in their life. I know they're facing this right now. They're facing this trial. Lord, be glorified in that. Use this trial. And just kind of march through my family, my church, my neighborhood. Pray in that way. Lord, be hallowed. Be glorified. So from our hearts comes that prayer, Lord, hallowed be your name. Next, it says, your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, because we have tasted of the Lord and we've seen what it means to be under His kingship, under His rulership, the goodness of that, we want it to be expanded. We want His kingdom to be expanded. A kingdom is a place where a king rules. The king is Jesus. And we want to see His rulership expanded. The kingdom has come already. Jesus came and He preached the good news. Repent and believe for the, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He came to bring the kingdom. And after His death and resurrection and ascension, 1 Corinthians teaches us, 1 Corinthians 15, that He's reigning in heaven. And He's going to continue reigning until He has finished His reign and brought all things under His dominion. So He's actively right now reigning and seeking to expand His reign on the earth. His disciples in Acts chapter 1 
asked him a good question because they knew their Bibles. They said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to finish your kingdom building now? And Jesus' reply was, it's not for you to know the times or dates, but you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That right now, kingdom expansion is through you being my witnesses, through you bringing the gospel and all its implications to bear on your lives and on the lives of those around you throughout the whole earth. So when we pray for His kingdom to come and His will to be done on, on the earth, we're asking for His reign and rulership to come and to happen and to expand and to, to progress through the Gospel. To ever widen in its circle of influence. My understanding of this truth leads me to pray hopefully, not negatively. Leads me to view the church hopefully and positively, not negatively. Christ isn't about us hanging on and just being a surviving remnant until the end comes. That's not His plan. We are to pray, let your kingdom come and your will be done. The Lord is about the Gospel going to all the nations. Everyone hearing. Everyone being affected. Not necessarily everyone coming to know Christ, though we can pray that. And we don't know the number. We don't know the number. But His plan is for the the Gospel to ever expand. And then the end will come. And so He gives us this prayer, let your kingdom come. It, is, it doesn't say in the prayer, Lord, just keep us hanging on until the end. That's not what it says. Lord, allow us just to survive the ever-growing evil world. That's not what it says. It says, Lord, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to have an outlook on our engagement in our culture that is looking and praying and seeking God that the kingdom would expand. John, if you could put those statistics up. There is a need for the kingdom to expand. We see it all around us. And you guys are probably familiar with some of these statistics. Our national divorce rate is over 1 million marriages per year. How many divorces there are in our whole country? One million marriages per year. Over 50% of American women conceive their first child out of wedlock. We're the world's largest consumer of cocaine. 60% of Americans can't name five of the Ten Commandments. And 50% of high school seniors, this is an actual study, think Sodom and Gomorrah were married. There are a couple, I guess. Over 100 million Americans are considered unchurched. That means they don't have a church they somewhat regularly go to. They may go once a year or so, but they don't have a, a home church. How many people are there in the country? 300 million. So that's one-third of the country are unchurched. Now, they may profess faith in Christ, but they're not part of a healthy local church. New England has the lowest percentage of Bible-believing Christians in the entire nation, more than the Northwest. I thought, I thought the Northwest might be a rival, but New England has the least. With some reports showing as low as four-tenths of a percent. So that's four people in a thousand in New England. You can put that off. How do we view those statistics? Does that cause us to think, oh Lord, just we've got to circle the wagons and somehow survive this thing? We just got to keep our kids away from those other kids, and we got to ourselves stay away from those people down the street who think those crazy things. And we got to circle the wagons and protect, because if we do that enough, we can somehow hang on until the end. No. No. 
The prayer in Scripture is, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, may you use us to affect others. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. Do you know what that, when Jesus said that, you build this church, the gates of hell, that doesn't mean that the gates of hell are attacking us and beating us down, but somehow we're going to survive. It's the other way around. A gate is something that keeps us out. The, the, the gates and the authority behind those gates will not be able to withstand us going in and marching forward. That's what he's talking about. The gates of hell will not prevail. So we are to pray, let your kingdom come. May your gospel go forward and in our lives and through our lives to this area. So our approach to these statistics needs to be, God, work. God, do a mighty work. You know, often we think of the Great Awakening as New Englanders and, and we, we, we love what went on. 250 years ago or so, whatever it is. We love what went on. And I do too. But I don't think we should be thinking that way. We should be praying and asking, God, may your kingdom come. May your will be done. May you work in such a way through our region that the Great Awakening will be considered a quaint old revival that happened a long time ago. Well, wasn't that cool what God did? That was very quaint. This is amazing. That should be our approach. John, if you could put up the next... Slide. Let me give you some encouragement that's going on right now. South Korea, one generation ago, there were only one million believers in the country. In one generation, from 1960 to 1997, they went from one million believers to 45 million believers. One third of the population. They doubled in every decade. Now this was a country steeped in Buddhism, this was a country that back in the, I believe it was the 1800s, were, were massively persecuting Christians. The missionary work really didn't even get rolling until 1900. And it was not until the 1960s that something started to happen. And the church grew, doubling every decade. That's amazing. Can you imagine if the church doubled every de- decade in New England? Even at the four and a thousand. Start doubling that. Eight and a thousand, sixteen and a thousand, thirty-two and a thousand, sixty-four, hundred and twenty-eight, two hundred and fifty-six, five hundred and twelve. That's half. That's how many what's that? Six decades? It doubles to, to half the population in six decades? If we grow like that? Why not? Why not? Our God's a great God. Our gospel is a powerful gospel. It changes lives. So let us have that orientation. Let us understand this is the Lord's prayer. He's telling us to pray this way. There's nothing in here about hanging on and being a remnant that survives. It's about kingdom expansion. And it went on in Korea. It can go on here. One thing that they do in Korea is they pray. They are a people, as Christians, that are characterized by prayer. And and if you talk to people who have been there, that's what they'll say. From what I understand, there are traffic jams in Seoul at 5 in the morning because people are on their way to pray. That's how seriously they take prayer. They are people who seek God. And I, and I can't help but think that God has been pleased through their prayers to bring this revival. And now they are sending missionaries throughout the world. And I heard someone recently say that the way that Islam will fall to Christianity will not be through the West because there's so much prejudice and there's so much baggage we bring with our Christianity. It'll be through the East. It'll be through the Chinese and Korean Christians. And they are already planning to massively evangelize the Muslim world. One generation now. That's all it is. So let us ask the kingdom to come. Let us seek that the kingdom would come. Let us pray. 
Because God has already sought us and God has put us here in New England for such a time as this. So let us pray this way and not give up. And not give up. Will you pray with me that way? Can we commit to pray that way and not give up and labor as long as the Lord tells us to for that purpose? Let your kingdom come. The next he says, we will pray, give us this day our daily bread. As we pray, we come to the Lord recognizing our daily dependence on Him. We can't do anything without Him. It's interesting, it says, give us our daily bread. I believe that is because He wants us to come before Him to pray daily. (laughs) We don't pray daily if we don't think we need to pray daily. But if we recognize we are desperately needy, and we recognize that He has sought us already, we will come daily to pray. We're to seek Him daily. We're, we're not to live our lives. I'm not to live my life with my plans. James, James chapter, I forget, James chapter 4, I think it is, or 3, talks about this. The, the attitude of the one who says, this, I'll do this and this on that day. I'm going to go to this place and do this thing. And he says, says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. God calls us to have that sort of orientation. Not living on our plans. Not living on what we're going to do, but living every day dependent. Oh Lord, I need Your daily bread. I need Your help. I can't do today without You. I can't abide for one day without You. I need You. I need You to supply food. But daily bread, I think, implies more. And the, the, the picture comes really from the daily manna that God gave the Israelites in the desert. Every day. He only gave them enough for a day. If they hoarded it, it didn't last the next day. That's the sort of relationship the Lord wants us to have with Him. That's a picture of what He calls us to. He doesn't want us to live on yesterday's manna. He doesn't want us to live on tomorrow's manna or what we think we'll do. He wants us to live every day, day by day. Give us our daily bread. So we're to pray daily and ask the Lord to supply not just our food, but I think that it means everything. Luther, it said... uh, quoted, says, For everything necessary for the preservation of this life, like food, a healthy body, weather, house, home, wife, husband, children, good government, and peace. Basically, with this daily bread is understanding it's, it's asking God for everything we need, all the essentials that we need daily. So we ought to pray this way. <clears throat> and God will be faithful to answer us. Our daily bread. Next, in the prayer... Let me uh, I just I want to illustrate that with one story. Um, God is faithful to, to answer our prayers daily and, and moment by moment. He wants us to have that relationship. And I, I think I've told you this story, some of you, uh, some time ago. One of our moves, we were moving from uh, Maryland, uh, getting ready to do an internship to come up here. And we had signed up for a U-Haul truck to get this big U-Haul truck to stick all our stuff in. Could someone get me a drink of water, please? I only need one drink of water. <laughs> Thank you, guys. We had this. Uh, we signed up for a U-Haul truck, and uh, we had arranged for friends to drive about 40 miles to come down and help us load it up, and had all this stuff arranged. And we called up for the U-Haul truck. Supposed to be there at three. We called up at noon. There's no U-Haul truck. And then we called, called again, and and asked, you know, can we get any U-Haul truck? And they basically they they looked for the whole metropolitan D.C. area for a U-Haul truck for us, and there wasn't one available. 
we made a number of phone calls, and we didn't, we didn't know what to do. There was nothing available. And, and our friends were already on the way, and, and we didn't know what to do. And there was a local U-Haul place down the street. And I thought, well, you know, let's seek the Lord. We had prayed, seek the Lord. And, and I just thought, I'll drive down to the local U-Haul place and see if there happens to be a truck. We needed the big truck. And as I drove, I was praying, and I was desperate. And I, my faith was there, but it wasn't all there. <laughs> And the Lord brought to mind, as I was driving, um, the reality of his daily provision, his faithfulness to provide daily through the, uh, Romans 8:32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That came to mind, and I just said, Lord, I, I'm going to trust you. I drove up onto the lot, and there on the lot is a large U-Haul truck. Of all the lots in all of metropolitan D.C., the one lot that had it was the one right near us. And so I drove in, signed up for the truck, <laughs> and drove the truck home, um, parked it there, and we loaded it up and had no problem. God is faithful to provide. He is faithful to provide our daily bread. He wants us to have that sort of relationship. He will force us there sometimes, too, just like that. <laughs> Keeping our plans for the U-Haul truck from happening so that we will live day by day depending on Him. The prayer goes on. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also forgiven our debtors. God wants us to come and to confess our sins. We cannot spend any time in the Lord's presence or not spend that much time in the Lord's presence genuinely without recognizing that we're sinners and that we bring sin. And we are to know that our sin is covered by the blood of Jesus, but we're not to presume on that relationally. What I mean is with Peg as my wife. If I did something that was wrong and offensive to Peg. It would not be appropriate for me to, as we spend some time together and I've offended her, just to say, well, you know, I know, you know we're married and I know she loves me and I know she forgives me and I know we have this commitment you know, in a, within our marriage to forgive each other no matter what. And just to come in and say, you know, you know begin a conversation when there's been an offense and just think, well, she, of course I'm forgiven. I don't need to say anything. It would be inappropriate relationally. I need to come and say, honey, I'm sorry. What I did was wrong. I sinned against you. Will you forgive me? Now, I, I know she's committed to forgive me. We're married. We're covenanted together. But I don't presume on that relationally. And so as we come to, know, to the Lord in His presence, yes, the blood of Christ covers our sins, past, present, future. But prayer is about seeking Him and relating to Him. And so we come and we uncover our hearts. God, I've been a sinner today. I have craved things other than You. I've wanted stuff more than You. I've been foolish. I've been lazy. I know I'm wrong. And I come before you, my Father, my holy God. Forgive me my sins. Thank you for the forgiveness I have in Christ. And then in turn, if that experience of forgiveness is real for us, if we are really believers, we will turn and forgive others as well. So as we come to Him, He's always interested in the corporate, not just the individual. So as we come to Him for forgiveness, we ask for forgiveness personally. We ask for forgiveness we extend our forgiveness to others that have wronged us as well. We're required to do that. It's part of genuine forgiveness. The prayer goes on. Forgive us our debt as we, debts as we forgive our debtors. And then lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. As we come to pray and seek the Lord, we come recognizing the need for protection from sin. Lead us not into temptation. 
Deliver us from evil. We're praying, Lord, protect me from evil within. Protect me from evil without. Lead me not into temptation. I know my own heart. and I know I'm a sinner. I know I crave idols. Calvin said that the, the heart is an idol factory. Always coming up with an idol. It's always active. Always thinking, what's the latest idol? Your whole life, you are going to struggle with temptation. I'm going to struggle with temptation. Every day, we're going to be faced with the temptation to vest our minds and our emotions and our wills in an idol or in God. Every day. And really at every moment. Now there's, there is the Holy Spirit in us at work. Thank God for that. So there's hope. But that's the reality. So as we pray, as we seek to regularly pray, we come before the Lord, we say, lead us not into temptation. So we can spend time just praying. It's interesting too. Do you notice it says, lead us not into temptation? It doesn't say, lead me not into temptation. This is a corporate prayer. And that's to be understood in our prayers. It's corporate. And so as we pray personally, Lord, lead me not into temptation, we should be praying corporately that way as well. And a kind of question, point of application is, do you know your friend's temptations? Is there a trusted brother or sister who knows your temptations and who has disclosed their temptations to you? And are you praying for one another that way? Regularly? Lead us not. Lead us not into temptation. And then deliver us from evil. We pray for deliverance from, from the sin within that's there. God will deliver us from our temptations and we pray regarding evil without. Certainly referring to the devil and his minions. We are to be aware that the devil is at work. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So we're to pray. Deliver us from the evil one. He's active. He wants to consume and destroy my brothers and sisters' lives. He wants to consume and destroy Christians. And, and I would appeal to you, I know you guys already do this, and I'm so glad for it. Pray for me. Because he goes after shepherds. Because if he can get the shepherd, usually he can get the whole gang. Some way. And so pray for me. And, and I'm aware, since pastoring, just of spiritual warfare on a level I've never experienced before. And for me, particularly when I first started out, it was very difficult. I would wake up in the mornings, often on Mondays, and often before seasons of God's activity. Maybe before a week of outreach or just times when he was gonna, God was doing something. And I would wake up with this inexplicable sense of despair and doom. i just wake up to it. I hadn't thought about it. It wasn't like I had a dream that led up to it. It would be like I'd wake up and it was just on me, like a blanket. And I began to realize it's the enemy. And, and I don't, I mean, it's probably me too. I don't need to figure it all out. I'm not, not saying we, we need to inappropriately delve into the enemy's schemes, but we need to make sure we're not unaware of his schemes. And for me, what has helped so much is at that moment is just to remember the Gospel, to, to preach the Gospel to myself, to declare the wonder of Christ crucified for sinners and risen as my hope and my boast. And that dispels the darkness. But I also know that that, that ability, that victory that I experience, I believe comes through the prayers of God's saints, of, of His people. So we need to pray together. Deliver us from the evil one. The band could come up as we close. Again, our perception, our, the way that we think and conceive of this and deal with this reality, though, should not be, again, Lord, help us. We're getting back into the corner here. The evil one's on the move. My sin is all around me. Now, we're to be aware of that, but it is also to be, Lord, deliver us from the evil one. 
work in my life, deliver us from temptation, break down the gates. So the early church, when they were aware of evil without, how did they pray in Acts chapter 4? Do you guys know that prayer? When they're aware of evil without, the the authorities coming and affecting them, what did they do? Listen to their prayer. Listen to how they prayed. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to Your servants to continue to speak Your Word with all boldness. God, evil is without affecting us. God, look upon their threats. Grant to Your servants to speak Your Word with all boldness while You stretch out Your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of Your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. So we pray together. We seek the Lord and the Lord works. The Lord has determined to use this key means of grace of prayer to accomplish His great purposes. And He calls us to that. He seeks us. He has gone to extravagant lengths to seek you, to seek me, to seek us, to draw us to Himself. He's given His only Son, the all-glorious Son, who is worthy of all praise, was crucified on the cross for us. He died and He's raised from the dead. He has sought us out that we might seek Him and join with Him in His purposes to bring His kingdom, to bring His glory, to meet our needs, to grant us the experience of forgiveness, to work holiness in our lives and victory over sin and Satan and the corruption of the world. Prayer is seeking the God who seeks us. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank You that we can seek You and we can ask these amazing things of You. You invite us to come and ask. You invite us to ask according to who You are and the wonder of what You've done in seeking us. Thank You so much, Lord, that You have sought us. We belong to You. And Lord, we ask by Your grace that we would appropriately seek You according to who You are, according to Your grace, according to Your greatness, according to Your faithfulness, according to Your desires, Lord, according to Your glorious plans for Your creation. May we seek You diligently, O God. Lord Jesus, we pray. Teach us to pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Your glorious cause, O God, engages our hearts. May Jesus Christ be known wherever we are. We ask not for ourselves, but for your renown. The cross has saved.
Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you. Have a great week.